Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. This month marks the 300th anniversary of one of the most dramatic episodes in the history of Charleston, the trial and execution of four dozen pirates who were captured off the Carolina coast in 1718. In today's episode, we'll explore the background preceding these extraordinary trials and focus on the heroic efforts of South Carolina mariners to capture two of the most notorious pirate captains, Steed Bonnet and Richard Worley, and bring them to justice in Charleston. Even if you're not a fan of pirate literature, you cannot deny that these events form a significant and swashbuckling chapter in the colorful history of the Carolina colony. The War of Spanish Succession, known in the American colonies as Queen Anne's War, raged from 1702 to 1713. Most of the action took place in Europe, and most of the military resources, including warships, remained on the other side of the Atlantic. Here in the American colonies, including those of the Caribbean Sea, the local governments of each of the warring nations issued licenses to private ships of war, or privateers, to attack their enemy's shipping. In the poorly regulated waters between the sparsely populated colonies of North America and the West Indies, privateering was a fairly profitable business for more than a decade. At the conclusion of the war in 1713, however, all of those government-sanctioned privateers were suddenly out of business. Privateering was legal during a time of war, if you had a proper license, but that license expired on the Declaration of Peace. A number of men engaged in this violent, sea-roving lifestyle continued unabated, however, and the government now looked on them as pirates, that is, seafaring thieves who illegally preyed on any vessel they found. In the mid-17-teens, the people living on the Atlantic coastline of North America and among the Caribbean islands witnessed a surge of piratical activity on the high seas. The colony of South Carolina was still small and thinly populated at that time, but the port of Charleston was growing in importance and in wealth. Privateers and pirates had occasionally found shelter here since the beginning of the colony, and our local government made a minimal effort to check their abuses. The sea rovers frequently brought hard money and exotic goods to town, which induced many officials to refrain from investigating the legality of their supply chain. Most of the pirates operating at this time began converging on the islands of the Bahama Archipelago, which were then under the control of the same Lord's proprietors that owned the Carolina colonies. The Bahamas lacked a functioning government in the wake of Queen Anne's War, however, so the Bahamas became a nurturing nest and gathering place for all manner of pirates. By the summer of 1716, the government of South Carolina was complaining to British officials that the pirates of the Bahamas, as they called them, had become a serious nuisance to Carolina shipping and asked the British Navy to send reinforcements to check their activity. The British government heard complaints about pirates from their American colonies and from English merchants trying to ship goods to them. Rather than allocating expensive resources such as ships and sailors to combat the problem, 
the British government decided to follow a simpler and cheaper plan that had worked well in the past. On the fifth day of September, 1717, King George I issued a royal proclamation offering amnesty to pirates who would give up their criminal careers within the next 12 months. Pirates who confessed their crimes to the governor of any one of the British colonies and took an oath promising good behavior would be pardoned and therefore exempt from prosecution. This time-limited offer did induce many pirates to seek protection, but it also drove many of the pirates out of their nest in the Bahama Islands, which temporarily lacked a functioning government, and into the waters of places like the Carolinas. In short, the King's Proclamation of September 1717 was the beginning of the end of our post-war pirate boom, but it made the situation temporarily worse for the people of Charleston. In the years 1717 and 1718, the people living along the coast of both North and South Carolina witnessed a surge in piratical activity. During this period, the vessels sailing into and out of the port of Charleston were frequently harassed by pirate vessels and even pirate squadrons led by men such as Major Steed Bonnet, Edward Teach or Thatch, alias Blackbeard, William Moody, Charles Vane, and Richard Worley. In early June of 1718, a powerful pirate squadron under Blackbeard's command effectively closed the port of Charleston for a number of days by blockading the passageway in and out of the harbor. You can learn more about the biography and career of each of these men by reading the semi-fictional accounts published in the 1720s by one Captain Charles Johnson, whose true identity has been debated for nearly three centuries under the title a general history of the pirates, especially the second expanded edition of late 1724. Pirate history has become a sort of industry of its own in recent years, and I generally try to avoid wading into those murky, semi-fictional waters. There's very little documentary evidence to support the lurid tales that are often published about the pirates and their activities, and I'm a stickler for bona fide evidence taken from primary sources— that is, accounts written or published by witnesses around the time of the events they describe. We are fortunate, therefore, that there is a fair amount of legitimate documentary evidence surrounding the most dramatic pirate episode in Charleston's history, the capture, trial, and execution of four dozen pirates in the autumn of 1718. This episode is actually two separate stories that collided in November of that year, involving first the crew of Steed Bonnet's pirate sloop, the Revenge, and then the crew of Richard Worley's pirate sloop, New York's Revenge, and his pirate ship called New York Revenge's Revenge. I'd like to share with you two brief narratives written by unknown authors who lived in Charleston in the late 17-teens. The first story details the capture of Major Steed Bonnet and his crew in October of 1718, and the second concerns the capture of Richard Worley's crew a few weeks later. I'll save the details of the trials and executions for next week's program. Let's begin with a bit of background. In early 1718, Steed Bonnet and his crew had joined forces with the notorious Blackbeard and terrorized Charleston in June of that year. Afterwards, their pirate squadron went to North Carolina, 
where they disbanded and scuttled their main ship. Blackbeard and Bonnet parted ways, and separately both men took advantage of the king's proclamation of 1717 by taking an oath promising to cease their pirate careers. Both men promptly reverted to their wicked ways, however, and each met his fate in a different manner shortly thereafter. Blackbeard's final days belonged to the history of North Carolina, but Steed Bonnet was brought to justice here in Charleston. The following account of Major Bonnet's capture was published in London in 1719 as a preface to a volume called The Trials of Major Steed Bonnet and Other Pirates. We'll pick up this story right after Blackbeard and Bonnet have parted ways in North Carolina. We heard nothing of them till the beginning of September 1718, when we had a particular information that a pirate sloop of 10 guns and 60 men was at the Cape Fear River to the northward of this port with two prizes and had there begun to careen and refit. We did not doubt, but should then soon have another visit from them to prevent which Colonel William Rett of this province waited on the governor, Robert Johnson, and generously offered himself to go with two sloops and attack this pirate, which the governor agreed to, and accordingly, on September 4th, gave Colonel Rett a commission and full power to fit such vessels as he thought proper for such a design. In a few days, two sloops were equipped and manned the Henry with eight guns and 70 men, commanded by Captain John Masters, and the Sea Nymph with eight guns and 60 men, commanded by Captain Faber Hall, both under the entire direction and command of Colonel Rett, who, on the 10th of September, went on board the Henry and, with the other sloop, sailed from Charlestown to Sullivan's Island to put themselves in order for the cruise. And just then arrives a small ship from Antigua, one cook master, that is, chief navigator, who gave us an account that in sight of our bar, he was taken and plundered by one Charles Vane, a pirate, in a brigantine of 12 guns and 90 men, who had also taken two other vessels bound in here, one a small sloop, Captain Dill, master, from Barbados, and the other a brigantine called the Dorothy, Captain Thompson, master, from Guinea in Africa, with ninety-odd Negroes, which they took out of his vessel and put on board another pirate sloop, which they had under the command of one Charles Yates, with fifteen men, which was fortunate to Captain Thompson's owners. Yates, having often attempted to leave this course of life, took this opportunity, for in the night he got away from the brigantine and carried the sloop and negroes into North Edisto River to the southward of this port. The owners got their negroes, and Yates and his men had certificates of pardon given them from the government. Vane, meanwhile, continued cruising off our bar in hopes to catch Yates and it unfortunately happened that four ships bound to London, who had waited for some time for a fair wind, got then over the bar, and two of them were taken, namely the Neptune, a large pink with 16 guns, Captain King, commander, and the Emperor with 10 guns, Captain Power, commander, but both very deep loaded. The pirates gave out, while the prisoners were on board, that they designed to go into some of our rivers to the southward and there careen. 
Colonel Rhett, upon hearing this, sailed over the bar on the 15th of September with the two sloops before mentioned, and having the wind northerly, went after the pirate Vane and scoured the rivers and inlets to the southward. But not meeting with him, tacked and stood for Cape Fear River in prosecution of his first design. And on the 26th of September following, in the evening, entered the mouth of the river and saw over a point of land three sloops at anchor, which were the pirate and his two prizes. But it happened in going up the river that the pilot ran both sloops aground, and it was dark before they were on float, which hindered their getting up that night. The pirate soon discovered our sloops, and not knowing who they were, they manned three canoes and sent them down the river in order to view and take them if they could. But they soon found that impracticable, our people lying on their arms all night and kept a strict watch. The canoes returned, and the pirates all that night made preparations for engaging. And the next morning, Saturday the 27th of September, they got under sail and came down the river. And depending on the Carolina sloop's sailing, the pirates designed only a running fight. But our sloop stood for him and got on his each quarter, that is, one sloop on each side of Bonnet's stern, with a design to board the pirate, which, he finding, edged in towards the shore, and being warmly engaged, the sloop ran aground. Our sloops, being in the same shoal water, were aground as soon as the pirate, the Henry, in which Colonel Rhett was, grounded within pistol shot of the pirate on his bow. The other sloop grounded right ahead of him and almost out of gunshot, which made him of little service to the colonel while they lay aground. At this time, the pirates had a considerable advantage, for their sloop, after she was aground, listed from Colonel Rhett's, by which means they were all covered, and the colonel's sloop Listing in the same way, his men were much exposed. Notwithstanding which, they kept up a brisk fire the whole time they thus lay aground, which was near five hours. The pirates made a whiff in their bloody flag and beckoned with their hats in derision to our people to come on board them, which they only answered with cheerful huzzays and told them it would soon be their turn. And which was so in a little time for Colonel Rhett was first afloat and got into deeper water, and after mending the sloop's rigging, which, with the sloop itself, was much shattered in the engagement, they stood for the pirate to give a finishing stroke and designed to go directly on board him, which he prevented by sending a flag of truce, that is, he raised a white flag, and after some time capitulating, they surrendered themselves. Our people took possession of their sloop and went up the river in order to refit and water, where they retook the two prizes which the pirate had taken two months before. They were both sloops, one belonging to Antigua, Captain Peter Manwaring, commander, the other to Pennsylvania, Captain Thomas Reed, commander. Our people were well pleased to find this pirate to be Major Bonnet, who had so often infested our coast. He went then by the name Captain Thomas. We had killed in the action on board the Henry ten men and fourteen wounded. On board the Sea Nymph, two killed and four wounded. 
The officers and mariners in both sloops behaved themselves with the greatest bravery, and had not the sloop so unluckily run aground, we should have taken the pirate with much less loss of men. But as he designed to get by them and so make a running fight, our sloops were obliged to keep near him to prevent his getting away. Of the pirates, there were seven killed and five wounded, two of which died soon after of their wounds. Colonel Rhett weighed anchor on the 30th of September from Cape Fear River and arrived at Charlestown on the 3rd of October to the great joy of the whole province. Bonnet and his crew two days after were put on shore, and there not being a public prison, the pirates were kept at the watch house under a good guard of the militia. But Major Bonnet was committed into the custody of the Marshal, Nathaniel Partridge, at his house on the south side of Trad Street between Church Street and East Bay. And in a few days after, David Harriet, the master, and Ignatius Pell, the boatswain, who were designed to be evidence for the king against the other pirates, were removed from the rest of the crew to the said marshal's house. And every night, two sentinels were set about the said house. But notwithstanding all that care and the strict orders the governor often gave the marshal to take care of his prisoners— on the 24th of October, Major Bonnet and Harriet made their escape, the boatswain refusing to go with them. When the account was brought to the governor that Bonnet had made his escape, he immediately issued out a proclamation and promised a reward to any that would retake him, and accordingly sent several boats with armed men both to the northward and to the southward in pursuit of them. But all returned without being able to give any account of them. Bonnet stood to the northward, but wanting supplies and the weather being bad, he was forced back, and so returned with his canoe to Sullivan's Island, near Charlestown, to fetch him supplies. But there being some information given to the governor, where it was thought they might find Bonnet, the governor sent for Colonel Rhett and desired him to go in pursuit of Bonnet, and accordingly gave him a commission for that purpose. Whereupon the colonel, with proper craft and some men, went away that night for Sullivan's Island. They searched very diligently for a long time before they found them, but at last, discovering where they were, some of Colonel Rhett's men fired at them and killed the master, Harriet, on the spot, and wounded one Negro and an Indian. Bonnet submitted and surrendered himself, and the next morning, being November the 6th, was brought by Colonel Rhett to Charlestown and, by the governor's order, was committed into safe custody in order to his being brought to trial. In his 1724 publication, A General History of the Pirates, Captain Charles Johnson paraphrased much of the foregoing 1719 account of Steed Bonnet's capture. Johnson's volume also included a biographical sketch of Captain Richard Worley, but the author mistakenly set his inaccurate description of Worley's final battle off the coast of Virginia. Shortly after the publication of Johnson's 1724 History of the Pirates, an unknown resident of Charleston sent the author in London a more accurate account of Worley's last stand, which took place off the coast of South Carolina. Captain Johnson included this improved contemporary description in a second volume of pirate history, which he published in 1728. In October 1718, Governor Robert Johnson was informed that there was a pirate ship off the bar of Charleston, commanded by one William Moody, 
carrying 50 guns and near 200 men, and that he had taken two ships bound into that port from New England, and was come to an anchor with them to the southward of the bar. Whereupon he called his council and the principal gentlemen of the place, and proposed to them to fit out a proper force to go and attack him, fearing he might lie there some time, as Thatch or Blackbeard and Charles Vane had done before, and annoy the trade which they unanimously agreeing, and there being at that time fourteen or fifteen ships in the harbor, he impressed the Mediterranean galley, Arthur Lone, and the King William, John Watkinson, commanders, and two sloops, one of which was the sloop Revenge, taken from Steed Bonnet, the pirate, and another from Philadelphia. The former, Captain John Masters, commanded, and the latter, Captain Frayer Hall, which two captains had lately commanded the same sloops that took Bonnet at Cape Fear about a month before. On board the Mediterranean was put 24 guns and 30 on board the King William. The Revenge sloop had eight and the other sloop six guns. And thus being equipped, the governor issued a proclamation to encourage volunteers to go on board, promising them all the booty to be shared among them and that he himself would go in with them. But the ships and sloops before mentioned being impressed, it was natural for the commanders to desire some assurance of satisfaction to be made to the owners in case of a misfortune, so that the governor found it necessary to call the General Assembly of the province, without whom it was impossible for him to give them the satisfaction they desired, and who, without any hesitation, passed a vote that they would pay for the said vessels in case they were lost, according to an appraisement then made of them and what other expenses accrued to carry out this necessary expedition. This way of proceeding took up a week's time, during which the governor ordered scout boats to ply up and down the river, as well as to guard the port from any attempts the pirates might take to land, and to hinder them from having advice of what was doing, and also laid an embargo on all the shipping. About three days before the governor sailed, there appeared off the bar a ship and a sloop who came to an anchor and made a signal for a pilot. But they being supposed to be the pirate William Moody and a sloop that had joined him, as it was said he expected, no pilot was permitted to go near them. And thus they rid for four days, once or twice attempting to send their boat on shore to an island called Sullivan's Island, as they afterwards confessed, to fetch water of which they were in great want. But they were prevented by the scout boats before mentioned, and for want of which they were obliged to continue in the same station in hopes some ship would be coming in or going out to relieve their necessities, they being very short also of provisions. And now, all things being ready, and about three hundred men on board the four vessels, the governor thought himself a match for Moody and his fifty-gun ship, although he should be, as they thought he was, joined by a sloop. And therefore he sailed with his fleet below Johnson's Fort overnight, and the next morning, by break of day, weighed anchor, and by eight in the morning they were over the bar. The pirate sloop immediately slipped her cable, hoisted a black flag, and stood to get between the bar and the governor's ships to prevent their going in again, as they suspected they would have done. 
And in a small time after, the pirate ship also hoisted a black flag and made sail after the sloop. During all this time, the men on board the governor's vessels did not appear, nor was there any show of guns until they came within half gunshot. When the governor hoisted a flag at the main topmast head of the Mediterranean, and they all flung out their guns and giving them their broadsides, the pirates immediately run. Whereupon, the governor ordered the two sloops after the pirate sloop, which stood in towards the shore, while himself and the King William followed the ship that stood the contrary way to sea. She seemed to have many gun ports and to be very full of men, though she had fired but from two guns, which occasioned no small wonder on board the governor, why she had not flung open her ports and made use of more guns, she being imagined all this while to be moody. The sloop, which proved to be Richard Worley, was attacked by the two sloops so warmly that the men run into the hold, all except Worley himself and some few others, who were killed on the deck. And being boarded, they took her within sight of Charlestown. The people seeing the action from the tops of their houses and the masts of the ships in the harbor, where they had placed themselves for that purpose. But it was three in the afternoon before the governor and the King William came up with the ship, who, during the chase, had taken down her black flag and wrapping all the small arms in it, had thrown them overboard, and also flung over her boat and what other things they thought could lighten her. But all would not do. The King William came first up with her, and firing his chase guns, killed several of the people on board, and they immediately struck, that is, surrendered, when, to the no small surprise of the governor and his company, there appeared nearly as many women on board as men, who were not a few either. The ship proving to be the Eagle, bound from London to Virginia, with convicts, but had been taken by Worley off the Cape of Virginia, and had upwards of a hundred men and thirty women on board. Many of the men had taken on with the pirates, and as such, found in Carolina the fate they had deserved at home, being hanged at Charlestown. The virtuous ladies were designed to have been landed on one of the uninhabited Bahama Islands, where there was a proper port for these rovers to put in, at any time, to refresh themselves after the fatigue of the sea. And thus a most hopeful colony would have commenced if they had but provisions and water sufficient to have carried them to sea. But their fate kept them so long before the port of Charlestown until they were destroyed and an end put to their wicked lives in the manner before mentioned. In our next episode of the Charleston Time Machine, we'll focus on the trials of Steed Bonnet and his crew, as well as the trial of the remnants of Richard Worley's crew in the South Carolina Court of Vice Admiralty in late October and November of 1718. After several days of dramatic eyewitness testimony, most of which was published in 1719, a total of 49 men were hanged for piracy at White Point. Tune in next week to learn who was condemned, who was acquitted, and who turned state's evidence against his pirate brethren. And of course, we'll consider where in Charleston the bones of those 49 pirates might rest today. C. 
CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.